And welcome to Viewpoint, smart radio to make you think and get you talking. That's what we do right here, the big stories of the week from all the angles. We've got great guests and great conversations coming up. My name is Todd Vander Hayden. It is ridiculous and theatrical, almost comical. At the same time, it is deadly, ruthless, borderline unhinged. North Korea, an otherwise insignificant country, a borderline failed police state, and a joke, let's be honest, in many ways. And yet, it is caught in a communist time warp with a bizarro leadership cult, slave labor camps, routine executions of anyone considered disloyal, and the fact is, North Korea is blackmailing and bullying its way into the headlines. It's got nuclear weapons, and it's holding the rest of the planet hostage to a certain extent. It's a clear sign of a complete failure by the rest of the world to allow this to have happened, to let it get this far. Failed strategies and policies, primarily by the United States, China, and South Korea, over the past 20 or 30 years, it might have been impossible all along to contain North Korea, but maybe not. Now, the country testing missiles, scaring the heck out of the region. Its dictator in his early 30s, Kim Jong-un, who had his own uncle executed using a massive anti-aircraft gun. That story in itself just about tells you what you need to know about him. All kinds of crazy and determined to hold on to power no matter what. And of course, the best way to do that is to build as many nukes as you can as fast as possible and be as big a threat as possible to the rest of the planet, including the United States. Donald Trump, by the way, is promising to stop North Korea to handle it. And a naval fleet is going to arrive in the Korean Peninsula next week. Trump is saying he will handle this with or without China's help. What does that actually mean? My guest is Benoit Ardi-Chartrain. He's a North Korean expert. He's with the Center for International Governance Innovation, one of the leading think tanks in our country. So, Benoit, what can be done here? Oh, that's uh, the million-dollar question, right? Uh, for years, 20, 30 years, ever since the North Koreans uh, started off, uh, started their nuclear program in the early 1980s, it really has thwarted all attempts by the international community to, uh, to deal with this nuclear program. And look, um, the United Nations, United States, South Korea, Japan, uh, China as well have all tried to deal with it. And the problem is, and I've been saying that for years, that there is no easy solution to this. Uh, whether it is sanctions, whether it is dialogue, uh, whether it is um, something a little more along military lo- lines, none of these issues have a clear, uh, a clear way out. Look, um, dialogue has been tried with North Korea. There were, uh, there were the, the, what we call the six-party talks in the early 2000s, from 2003 to 2009, that did not lead to anything. Um, even the South Koreans, they try to, you know, hold their hands. Basically, we call that the sunshine policy, meaning more dialogue with North Korea. Uh, several approaches have been tried. Uh, none of them really worked. There would be ways to perhaps go a little further uh, with the sanctions, perhaps with secondary sanctions, which we can talk about a little later. Uh, but the point is here, uh, there's no really good solution, and neither would the military option be a good solution, which, uh, again, we, we can talk about if, we want, if you want. What do the North Koreans want, Benoit? What the North Korean wants, um, technically speaking, they want one thing, which is the capability to develop, um, develop long-range intercontinental ballistic missiles to be able to hit the United States with a nuclear warhead. They want the capability. I'm not talking about them wanting to use it, but having the capability to do this. And having this in the, uh, from the viewpoint of Kim Jong-un and uh, the leaders of North Korea would pretty much guarantee their survival. They have always perceived uh, the entire world, well, mostly the United States as well as South Korea, as having a very hostile um, posture towards it. And therefore, in their eyes, they have a very, like, basically, they have a very uh, kind of siege-like mentality. And for them, uh, in view of this hostile posture towards them, the only way to, to ensure its survival is and will be uh, to develop um, a good, strong arsenal and be able to really dissuade the United States from hitting them. How do you do that? Well, by having the capability to hit them on their territory. 
It's so strange because here you have this pipsqueak, this backwater of a country really trying to be a bully and trying to look much bigger than it actually is. And the ultimate equalizer is nuclear weapons. And of course, North Korea saw what happened with Iraq and saw what happened with Libya and sees what's going on in Syria. And they're saying, nope, that's not going to happen to us. We are not going to let the Americans or anybody else invade. You said a moment ago that there's not a lot of good options. And you're totally right. But here's a question for you. We know that China is a huge ally of the North Koreans. They have a lot of economic ties with them. China is not happy with what North Korea is doing, but they could squeeze more, Benoit, if they wanted to. And even if they didn't, the United States could go after Chinese companies that do business with North Korea. In other words, the U.S. could put sanctions against those Chinese companies and those Chinese banks, sort of secondary sanctions. But the U.S. won't do that either. Why not? Uh, exactly. So this is what I mentioned earlier, though, the secondary san- uh, sanctions. Um, the Chinese play a Im- very important role uh, for North Korea. They are, we often talk about them as uh, North Korea's only ally in the world. Um, up to 90% of North Korea's trade goes through China. Therefore, uh, all roads to the resolution of this uh, nuclear issue go through China, for sure. And therefore, that is why we've seen Trump, ever since his election and his inauguration in January, talk increasingly about getting the Chinese to do more on this part. Now, you mentioned the sanctions. Sure, um, that's one thing we hear increasingly about in Washington, which is um, sanctioning companies, and you mentioned it earlier, uh, companies that deal with North Korea, companies that uh, abet and aid uh, with the procurement of uh, components for their either missile program or their nuclear program. Now, recently, it seems as though China is a little more willing to help on this front. Um, I don't know if you saw uh, Trump's tweet this week. He said something like, why would I call China a currency, currency manipulator when they are working with us on the North Korean problem? And that may be a sign of, um, of them having struck some sort of deal when Xi Jinping, the Chinese president, met Trump in uh, Florida uh, two weeks ago. Now, um, if indeed the Chinese seem to play ball with the United States and help the U.S. a little bit more uh, with how to deal with, with dealing with North Korea, then that may be why the United States are not so far imposing these secondary sanctions on, uh, on, on Chinese companies. But if it turns out that the Chinese are not helping enough, in the eyes of Washington, of course, then this, this is probably the next step we are going to see uh, from Washington, these secondary sanctions. Uh, it, it, is, it is touchy, though, for China. I mean, they have a very big, large influence in, on North Korea. We mentioned it. But the problem is they're really afraid of putting too much pressure on North Korea, because if there is any sort of instability, if there is a collapse in North Korea, who will bear the brunt of refugees, of instability? It will not. Be, well, it will be partially South Korea, of course, but largely it will be China because they have a very long border with North Korea and all refugees will end up in China. Bottom line, is this going to lead to war? Look, there is always a risk, especially now, uh, given the fact that we have a regime in North Korea that seems uh, even more bellicose than we are used to seeing it. Combined with the fact that we have an administration in Washington that is a little more unpredictable than Obama. And one of the reasons for that is we don't even have a clear Asia policy or North Korea policy from the United States. Usually when a new administration comes in, they lay out their policy for various parts of the world. In Asia, that has not been done. Because of this unpredictability, because of the high tensions, there is, yes, always a risk of misinterpretation on the part of North Koreans. They may see, for example, uh, the Americans bringing um, boats around the peninsula and perceive that as some sort of uh, readiness to invade North Korea, something like that. There's always a risk of miscalculation. However, both sides are very, I think, aware of the risks of this. And I think Trump recently has laid back a little bit in the last week or so about uh, the, the talks of a preemptive strike. I think they are very aware that this would likely lead to a large-scale conflict in the region. Benoit Ardi Chartrand, my guest, North Korea expert. He's with the Center for International Governance Innovation. You're listening to Viewpoints, the podcast on iTunes, smart radio covering top stories of the week, plus fun radio to get you talking. You'll find it all right here. Now, let's get back to the show. 
They are arguably the most powerful couple in the world. Still in their mid-30s, they are glamorous, mysterious, unelected, yet extremely influential. Wealthy, famous, and the journey upward for them has really only just begun. Ivanka Trump and her husband Jared Kushner, the first daughter and first son-in-law to President Donald Trump, both have been given an unprecedented amount of power. Never before have we seen this kind of thing in modern history. They've got offices at the White House itself. They meet with foreign leaders. They're given major roles and responsibilities in the Trump administration, including over things like foreign policy, Middle East peace, Iraqi strategies for the United States. All of that despite having zero political experience. This is a first family, quasi-royalty, thanks mainly to an extremely unconventional president in the Oval Office who values loyalty above and beyond everything else. And so Ivanka and Jared, 35 and 36 years old, are helping to run the show of the world's biggest superpower and often behind the scenes. It's mind-boggling in so many ways. And one final point, they are also in many ways elite, super-rich, liberal Democrats from Manhattan. So the complete opposite of the people who actually voted for Donald Trump. My guest on the line in Fredericksburg, Virginia, is Steve Farnsworth, U.S. political analyst who we often call up to get his take on all things related to U.S. politics. Steve, what do you think about this power couple? Well, I think it really does speak to the idea that Donald Trump is trying to run his presidency the way that he ran his business. And one of the things to remember about Donald Trump is that he wasn't the CEO of a corporation. He was the head of a family business. And so it was always very personal with Donald Trump. The people uh, that he had working for him was relatively small number of people compared to, say, Exxon or Mobil or some company like that. But still... Uh, very family-connected and very much focused on loyalty. And maybe that's okay in the real estate business. When you're thinking about making development deals and so on, you can always move on to something else. But when you're talking about an iterative game, that is that when you're working with Congress over and over again on different policy matters, when you're working with members of uh, other countries, you know, leaders in other places, those people are going to be there whether you like them or not. And that means a certain level of experience and a certain level of caution in how you deal with some of these organizations, some of these other countries, uh, is really to your advantage. And Donald Trump's focus on loyalty, I think, is causing some problems for him in terms of the instability and the inconsistency that you see marking the way that Donald Trump and the Donald Trump family, who have such prominent roles, are choosing to handle foreign policy matters especially. There are Republicans out there who are starting to get more and more critical, saying, hold on, we didn't elect Ivanka Trump, we didn't elect Jared Kushner, and these people are, you know, getting huge chunks of, you know, policy strategy. Uh, for example, Kushner, uh, some people call him almost a shadow vice president. He's, you know, in charge of Middle East peace, he's in charge of uh, Iraq, he's in charge of innovation in the White House, and the list goes on and on and on. It really is astonishing when you look at the portfolio that Kushner's been given in particular. You, you think about uh, Middle East peace. Now, this is the devil, the most sophisticated, most experienced political and foreign policy hands for generations now. And yet the, the 35-year-old, 36-year-old neophyte is going to be able to do that while he is doing all these other things that he's expected to do, especially the reorganization of government, a massive task in and of itself. I mean, you have given... Uh, 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 an extraordinary portfolio, uh, more than any one person has ever been expected to handle. It's sort of like Al Gore plus Henry Kissinger all wrapped up into one. And then there are other things he has to do, too. I mean, the biggest question of all, do they actually know what they're doing? What do you think, Steve? Well, I think that that there is a great deal of uncertainty with these people. When you listen to the way that the Trump administration talks on one day and how they talk on the next day, it's pretty clear they're learning as they go. That's not uh, unusual, right? Most presidents are going to have an extraordinary learning curve when they take office. When you think about George W. Bush or Barack Obama, they had a lot to learn. But they didn't have as much to learn as the Donald Trump team. And Donald Trump, I think, has made his own situation worse by choosing not to have the experienced advice that he could have had 
at the ready. If you think about, say, Harry Truman, who became president without a great deal of uh, preparation. When FDR died in 1945, Harry Truman, who'd only been president, uh, vice president a few months, becomes president. Now, he'd been a senator. He knew some things about what was going on, but even major things like the development of a nuclear weapon, which was about to be uh, deployed in a few months later in Japan, he had been kept in the dark in that. And what Harry Truman's approach to being a president was, was you simply say, look, I don't know everything. I don't know a lot, in fact. So what I need are the smartest people around me I can possibly find, the most experienced, the most sophisticated. Uh, the president makes the decision, of course, but good advice means better policy making. And I'm not sure that Donald Trump is uh, is getting that good advice. I think that some of the appointments that he's made, uh, particularly Mattis uh, in uh, in defense, you know, can really help. And so it's a, I think we're going to have to see how well or how poorly the Donald Trump presidency does based on how much he listens to those experienced hands, because if, if, if it's an amateur advising amateurs, that's not a strategy for success. You're listening to Viewpoints. We're talking to Steve Farnsworth on the line, U.S. political analyst. We're talking about the first couple, and I don't mean Donald Trump and his wife Melania. I'm talking about his daughter, Ivanka Trump, and her husband, Jared Kushner, 35 and 36 years old. The two of them holding an unprecedented amount of power in the White House. They have offices there, and they are involved in policy making, despite the fact they have no political experience whatsoever. It's interesting, Steve, because you think about the history of the United States. I mean, the revolution happened because... They didn't want to have a British king, King George, running things. They wanted to get away from royalty. And here we are in 2017, and you have this first family where there's there are certain similarities to sort of a royal family. Well, uh, uh, that's absolutely the case. And there's a certain l'état-fait-moi to, uh, to the way in which these uh, the Trump family is treating this job. Uh, you know, the state is me is not exactly the Republican principle on which our country was founded, but there seems to be a sense that whatever is good for Donald Trump and Donald Trump's business should be pursued, and that's going to be good for the country as well. If you look at a whole series of business transactions, a whole series of decisions that are being made so far in the Trump presidency, they seem to be very beneficial to Trump financial interests. Now, hmm. you can understand a monarch looking out for the, the wealth and, and power of that uh, of that royal family. Um, it's a bit more problematic and a bit more foreign to the American experience when you look at the decisions that Trump is making, whether it's inviting foreign policy leaders to private resorts that the Trump family owns to build up attention and business for those resorts, to make sure that nearly every weekend Donald Trump is golfing at a Trump-themed, Trump-named, Trump-owned property, uh, to to the various ways in which copyright laws are being adjusted around the world to make the first family and the Trump president uh, and his family happy. So there, from one thing to another, you have a whole series of real problems from our tr- Republican tradition. Uh, we, we cast off a monarch a long time ago, and one likes to think we didn't look back. One final thing uh, about the notion that these two, Ivanka and Jared, are uh, Manhattanites, they are liberals, or certainly Jared in the past has been a Democrat. There are Republicans who are very concerned that they have a lot of influence over Donald Trump. He trusts them the most out of anyone. And there are signs of a battle going on inside the White House over who will have control over the president. These two, this first couple, are liberals and they're elites. And what will that do to Donald Trump? I've often felt that you have very incompatible people in the Trump White House. You have Steve Bannon, who really isn't going to agree with Ivanka Trump and and Kushner on much. You have Priebus, the former RNC chief, who also has his differences with Bannon. Um, It's common for teams to turn on each other in a White House, and this uh, group of people that Donald Trump has selected, selected for loyalty, not for any measure of consistency, um, are really going to be very, very difficult. Now, if I were Steve Bannon, I wouldn't put uh, too much stock in the possibility that I would be listened to and family members would not, but he took the job and we'll see how that plays out. Steve Farnsworth on the line, U.S. political analyst. This is Viewpoints. Great guests and great conversations. From politics to pop culture, from technology to geek culture, we do smart radio and fun radio right here. Tune in every week to the iTunes podcast for the best segments from our nationally syndicated weekend radio show. 
Have you ever gone to a high-end restaurant, looked at that wine list, and had no clue what the heck you were doing? You know, you feel shy, slightly embarrassed, and you look for anything that seems familiar. Oh, Italy. I know Italy. I like Italian things. Australia? What do the Australians know about wine? Not sure. France? Well, you can't go wrong with French wine, of course. If that's anything remotely like you, you're not alone. Wine lists seem inherently snobby, maybe even a bit silly. Is there really much of a difference? Can you tell why one bottle is 30 bucks and the other is 300 bucks? Let me take it one step further now. What about sommeliers? Those are those wine experts, people who study, take exams, they live, breathe, eat, or drink, to be more accurate, wine. If you think this is just some sort of a fun pastime, a hobby like painting or stamp collecting or finding antiques, think again. Being a sommelier, not for the faint of heart, it is taken very seriously. It's all about the taste buds, the ability to detect the subtlety of wine. That is paramount. Wine, by the way, a huge business in 2017, so profitable. And let's be honest, it's a bit bizarre in its own way. Very competitive, eccentric, with its own weird jargon, curious rules, legendary egos. Well, my guest today is a woman who decided to plunge headfirst into this strange world to become a sommelier. And in doing so, she embarked on a fascinating journey into the world of wine, wine snobbery, and she had a whole lot of fun doing it too. The name of the book, Cork Dork. A wine-fueled adventure among the obsessive sommeliers, big bottle hunters, and rogue scientists who taught me to live for taste. Bianca Bosker is my guest in New York City. First things first, Bianca, you were like so many of us, zero real knowledge of wine, except, of course, that you enjoy drinking it. That's right. When I started, you know, there are those wine lovers who spend their Saturday nights agonizing over the choice of wine from Burgundy and Bordeaux. I'd spend my Saturday nights agonizing over the choice between wines from a bottle and a box. And (laughs) I thought that there was a difference, but I wasn't entirely sure, truth be told, what it was. And, you know, we think of wine as being this thing of pleasure, but these cork dorks turn it into a thing of pain. I mean, they are so dedicated to what they really see not as a job, but as a way of life. They lick rocks to train their palates. They divorce their spouses to spend more time studying. They uh, hire voice coaches, memory coaches, uh, sports psychologists. And they, what was really, for me, the entry point into all of this, compete in these crazy high-stakes sommelier competitions that are essentially, you know, the Westminster dog show with booze. And for me, I was really fascinated with why. I mean, what was the big deal about wine? And then on a personal level, at this point, I was back then working as a tech editor for an online website. And I can tell you, my life was not about the senses. It was about screens. And I wanted to know whether I could develop the sort of super senses that these cork dorks had trained themselves to have. I mean, they could, I mean, I'd smell wine in a wine. That was about it. But they could smell stories, histories, travel through a glass. And so I ended up quitting my job and starting over as the lowest of the low as a cellar rat. Uh, And, you know, really, uh, I think, worrying my friends and relatives in the process. Uh, I was doing a lot of daytime drinking. Bianca Bosker is my guest joining us from New York. The name of the book we're talking about, Cork Dork. And we should say that you are a journalist, of course, by training, uh, well-published as well. And you decided to go on this journey really as kind of an exploration of what was behind this whole industry. Get really down deep into the reeds, as you're saying, as a cellar rat, and figure out what was going on. One of the fascinating things is this whole notion of the palate. And you talk about, you know, no listerine, no coffee, no perfume, cutting back on salt. These people lick rocks. They even observe weather patterns as well, all to make sure their taste buds are perfect. Right. Well, so some of these things, I mean, it is. It's a lifestyle um you know, they turn their lives upside down in the name of flavor and their noses and tongues. And I can say, I did it too. I was right there with them because I I wanted to know whether I could really, again, actually train my senses. I mean, when you think about it, um, basically Plato decided early on that taste and smell didn't matter. These were the animalistic senses. They were the least important Uh, And really, that view has informed us 
ever since. I mean, both, you know, science, philosophy, even our everyday lives. I think most of us really ignore two of the five senses that we've been given to make sense of the world. And what's so interesting about this world of sommeliers and collectors is they turn that logic on its head. And so um, it really is a, a lifestyle where you think of your palate like, a, you know, because sommeliers talk about their noses and tongues like they're their best friend. You know, they know how they change uh, going from one state to another, one uh, altitude to another, what it's like when they live near water and how that affects their, their nose. Um, but I think the real key lesson here is that any of us can develop these super senses. I was in no way anyone, I had no kind of special nose or tongue going into this. In fact, I think it was below average. I remember going to eat a Japanese restaurant, slurping what was a delicious soup that they put out for me. Uh, until I realized it was actually a bowl of soy sauce, which is to say that I had, you know, pretty below average dunce of a tongue. And um, and I can tell you that, like you said, there's a lot of BS in the wine world, and I wanted to hold myself to a higher standard. And I did get my brain scanned at the end of this all to see if I'd actually improved. And, well, spoiler, I did. And, and what that shows is not just that any of us can really hone our senses, the little practice, but also the way that we experience the world changes in definitive ways. Yeah, that's one of the best parts of the book, this notion of listening to your senses and trying to develop them, the sense of smell and taste, to a heightened state, or more than most people have currently. We're talking to Bianca Bosker on the line. The name of the book is Cork Dork and her journey through the strange and curious world of sommeliers and wine and wine tasting. There are people out there, Bianca, you know this, who think the whole thing is a scam or it's all for snobs, elitism to the nth degree. You know, they hear about Somalis and they kind of roll their eyes. Now, after writing this book and taking this journey, what's your viewpoint on that criticism? I think it's a great question. So, candidly, when I started this, I also had my, I was very curious, but I was also a bit skeptical. Um, and I was set out to really figure out what was BS and what wasn't. And what I found is that there is a ton of BS in the world of wine. But when you clear that away, you are left with these precious truths that really have lessons and repercussions far beyond a glass of wine, whether it's how we perceive experience or how we you know, remember our most precious memories. And what I will say is I was very cognizant with Cork Dirk of, um, I think, you know, it's been described as subversive and it hasn't been without some controversy. And I, I think that the reason for that is that it doesn't stick to the typical wine world script. I mean, this world has uh, had some very convenient truths that have continued, I think, for far too long. Um, and I was really cognizant of, you know, let's pull back the curtain and the reality you know, we talk so much about the romance of wine, but the reality is so much messier and so much more complex and way more fascinating. I mean, just as an example, this concept of terroir, right? We hear it all the time. It is the most frequently used wine buzzword. Um, and I just wrote a story about this. It doesn't really exist in the ways that we'd like to think it does. And um, you know, not to say it doesn't exist, but it's much more complicated. Um, I think likewise, you know, tasting notes, right? Um, I think there's oftentimes the world of the sort of sommelier and the world of the scientist don't interact as much as they could. Um, so I was definitely there. I mean, there's so many examples of that. But, uh, but I think that there's too often, I think the problem is the wine industry tells people what to taste instead of showing them how to taste. And I think that unfortunately breeds and makes people, even very confident people, a bit petrified of wine. They don't trust their own senses. And to me, that's a really big, critical um, jumping-off point for a healthy relationship with wine. I got a question for you, and I'm going to be blunt. How do you not get drunk all the time when you're a sommelier? It's not easy, and you do. Um, I mean, I will say that when you're, basically, when you think about the life of a sommelier, um, you're doing a lot of palate training. I mean, when I was working to train as a sommelier, I was in, 
you know, two, three, four blind tasting groups a week. Um, so think about it. You know, I, at 10 a.m. on a weekday morning, I was sitting down to my first six glasses of wine. <laughs> and you do spit, obviously. You're not drinking all the wines, but you are drinking some of the wines. And even when you spit, you do absorb small amounts of the alcohol. And when you're talking about, you know, six, 12, 30 wines that you're trying, that adds up. Um, I think some, unfortunately, it's just part of the sort of a side effect of the job. And when, you, when you're working the floor and you're at a good restaurant, and you're, you, know, you taste the wines before you serve them to your guests. And so there again, you're kind of drinking at night. It's a lot. I mean, um, I found myself very affected, <laughs> affected by it to the point that, you know, on the weekends when I would uh, sort of have a night off, I uh, was completely dry. I was like, I, do, I don't want to taste any alcohol my Friday and Saturday night. This is my night off, and I am sticking with water. It's interesting as well when you talk about these sommeliers being deployed almost as secret weapons by restaurants to add profits, the fine art of the upsell. And, you know, I've been in this situation, too, where you're at a nice restaurant and the sommelier comes over and you kind of think, oh, boy, here we go. But, I mean, there's a lot of money to be made, and they're very good at targeting the clientele to get that money. Absolutely. Well, there's two sides to that. I mean, I will, so as part of my training, I um, did apprenticeships in a few different Michelin-starred restaurants, and I was really flabbergasted by the way that these restaurants are judging you every bit as much as you are judging them. Uh, <laughs> they keep, you know, they log the budgets, the, you know, how much people spend, uh, what their relationship to the restaurant is, their pet peeves, their preferences. Uh, if you spend a lot of money, you could be labeled a wine PX, which is short for personne extraordinaire. Mm. If you spend a whole hell of a lot of money, you could be labeled a wine PPX, which is personne particulièrement extraordinaire. Um, <laughs> you could be, uh, if you throw a temper tantrum, you could be an SOE, which is short for sense of entitlement. Uh, we have a lot of those here in New York. Um, and, um, you know, there's, Part of it, yeah, it is a, it's a business, right? I mean, they want to um, keep their guests happy and also have a sense of, you know, what they may want to spend. But I think that it's not, it's not just that they're out to upsell you and get you. Because I think, you know, sommeliers and restaurants, they know that that is a short-sighted view, right? Of course. You just bump an extra $20 on that price of the bottle. You may not come back. You may feel like you've been had. And really what it's designed to do is to... Be sure that those regular guests get that personal touch. You know, they feel like they're special. My guest is Bianca Bosker on the line in New York. She's an award-winning journalist and the author of Cork Dork. This is a great adventure. She spent 18 months following wine snobbery, figuring out what it meant to be a sommelier. And the book is really easy to read and a whole lot of fun as well. It's a very eccentric, strange, curious world full of lots of big-time egos. And, you know, Bianca, I know that, of course, North America has come a long, long way. And maybe the glitterati in Europe, the snobs of the world, world of wine in Europe look down their noses at us in North America. That's probably gone now to a large extent. But what about China? Because, of course, there's lots of money to be made as the rising middle class in China has a lot of money to spend. Winemakers, on the one hand, um, are incredibly excited about selling wine to this huge burgeoning wine-loving market. And on the other hand, deeply skeptical of uh, and almost snide about their wine appreciation abilities. <laughs> okay, so we know wine is a big, big deal nowadays. When you walk into a restaurant, having put this book together, and somebody hands you a wine list, what goes through your mind? So it depends on the restaurant. If I go someplace where um, I really, I trust their selection of wines, I feel like they, um, you know, have really someone who really gives a damn, has carefully selected uh, the wines on this list, I really put myself in their hands. I mean, there have been restaurants where I go in, close the list, and just when the sommelier or the server comes over, say, what are you most excited about? You know, what, uh, what do you have that I'm not going to have an easy time finding anywhere else? And I really let them put, take me on that journey. Because I'll tell you that, you know, 
Well, two things. One is, look, as a sommelier, I can tell you, we know that list better than you ever could. We know what's drinking well right now. We know what's a dud, what's a great value, what's exciting, what's weird, what's rare. Um, and I will say that a lot of my sommelier friends, when we go out to eat, were surprisingly, the more they knew about wine, the less specific they'd be with their order. And you really just need to give two pieces of information to your sommelier or the retailer at your favorite wine store, which is, one, what do you want to spend? And you can be very open. We all have a budget. And two, what flavors do you want to taste? And that could be as specific as saying, I want uh, a Grillo from Sicily, or as broad as saying, I want something that smells like grass. (laughs) And I can tell you that a sommelier is going to be able either way to direct that journey and maybe even introduce you to something you never would have tried before. I suggest people think about living according to a sort of never try the same bottle twice uh, motto Um, because it's sort of like books, right? There are books we come back to, we reread them, they change, they change us, but there are so many incredible books and so many incredible wines out there that why not explore? Bianca Bosker, my guest, the name of the book, Cork Dork. All right, we'll get back to the program in a moment, but here's a way for you to contact us. You can email us, viewpoints at bellmedia.ca, viewpoints at bellmedia.ca, and you can connect with me personally on social media. Find me on Instagram and Twitter. My handle for both is at ToddCTV. So many of us are online nowadays, and welcome back to the show. Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, your emails, your photos, you name it. Much of our lives are digitized. Social media, a way to stay in touch with old friends and family, colleagues, even exes, and the list goes on and on and on. This is all really kind of new territory for us, and I find it fascinating because this digital world is really recent. I mean, last 10 years recent, but with 2 billion Facebook users, give or take, 600 million Instagram users and hundreds of millions of people on all sorts of other platforms. A big chunk of our existence is digital in 2017. Here's the thing, not to get too morbid, but have you ever wondered what happens to all of these footprints if and when we are no longer around, as in when we pass away, whether it's suddenly or eventually, I mean, it's going to happen to all of us. What sort of digital legacy are you going to leave behind? Have you even thought about it? Do you have a strategy? Strategy? Do you have a plan? What happens to all those accounts? Who's going to oversee them? Turn them off? Delete them? Or, if you prefer, to keep them going? Some sort of digital legacy that lives on and on and on. I want to bring in my guest who wrote about this recently for the New York Times. Tim Herrera is the Smarter Living Editor at the Times, and he joins us now from New York City. Tim, great to have you on Viewpoints. Thanks for this. Thanks so much for having me. So what is going on when it comes to this whole notion of digital death here? What's at stake? So this is really, I mean, kind of a, a relatively new-ish concept um, and you know, kind of the idea of what happens to our digital lives after we die is something that wasn't really kind of in the, the broader public consciousness until kind of like early 2015 when Facebook really was the first among the huge, uh, you know, tech giants to approach this head on. And it was then that they introduced their legacy contacts and, um, you know, for, for companies of that size and of that relevance in such a, a broad uh, percentage of the population's lives, um, they were the first tech company to really um, put that at the forefront. So, you know, since then, it's really been something that other companies kind of followed suit and um, drawn up their own versions of this. But, um, you know, I mean, really, we're, we're kind of at, at the, this kind of weird forefront where, for the most part, all of us really are going to kind of be immortal in a way, you know, like these online uh, personas and characters that we're creating, um, you know, unless we really set them to expire or set some type of end to them, they're essentially going to live in perpetuity, which is is kind of a a scary and crazy and bewildering idea. It really is. And whenever you talk about the notion of death, I mean, it is tricky and it is delicate and it's very sensitive to how best to manage it. And I guess we're kind of stumbling through, aren't we, trying to figure out what works and what doesn't, what is appropriate and what isn't. Right, right. And, you know, the thing is, it's one of those, uh, you know, things we really don't like thinking about um, because it really makes us uncomfortable, you know, like, Funeral planning and will planning and estate planning is difficult enough, but, uh, you know, these digital personas of ours and the digital relationships we have are so deeply personal, 
Um, you know, we're, we're really kind of living our lives online um, in a way that even in the last, you know, 10 years has progressed. Um, and it's, you know, nobody wants to think about that. So we kind of don't think about that. And we avoid thinking about that. And, um, you know, as I was kind of reporting out the story that I had written um, earlier um, for the Times, something that kind of came up was that, um, you know, people just didn't have plans because they didn't want to think about it. So then you get into this position where, um, you know, there's really nothing, uh, there's no plan in place. Um, so it's, it's, you know, it's, it's difficult to get at. Um, and it's hard to kind of convince people that this is something that they really should be thinking about and prioritizing, even though it's just this abstract idea that's, for most of us, you know, decades away. Facebook, of course, is the big one. And I know when people have relatives who pass away, you know, you'll see something in your newsfeed about that. And, and then sometimes pages will be created to sort of curate these people's life and times. And, and no doubt a close friend or a relative is managing this and their friends can then go post and repost and all sorts of things. In some ways, it becomes quite beautiful. And as you're saying, kind of living on to a certain extent digitally. This notion of Facebook, though, with legacy contacts, what is that? So a legacy contact is a person that you establish to kind of uh, mind and tend your Facebook account after you, you know, die. Um, so ideally, it's somebody that you, you know, trust very deeply, someone you've known for a long time, uh, but you really kind of hand over the keys and say, uh, you know, once I'm no longer able to manage my own Facebook account for whatever reason, likely death, um, they can kind of take it and um, implement whatever plan that you had in place. And um, Facebook offers a couple of different um, options. Um, so you can have your legacy contact uh, establish your page as a memorial, um, which will have it live on, um, and people can comment on your profile with, you know, remembrances or thoughts or anything like that, um, and it'll kind of just live on in that form. Um, you know, it's important to note that these legacy contacts don't have access to things like your messages, um, so, you know, a lot of your you know, personal secrets are, are going to kind of remain inaccessible. Um, but but um, having that legacy contact is just kind of a person in place to, to really carry out um, whatever your wishes could be. Um, and then there's also options for, for them to, you know, download your data, so like your, your photos or your public posts or things like that, um, just in case you wanted to preserve those for whatever reason. Um, and then Facebook also lets you... Um, have your legacy contact just delete your profile outright. So if you didn't want it to live on in perpetuity or didn't want to have any remembrance or anything, you can just kind of vanish, um, which, which, you know, as I was kind of reporting out the story, it seems like, you know, is, is a pretty, um, you know, popular option for a lot of people. You know, this idea that it'll be around forever and outlive us by who knows how long is, is another kind of one of those very scary thoughts and ideas. Tim Herrera is my guest on the line in New York. He's the smarter living editor at the New York Times. And we're talking about managing your digital death, the notion that there are so many footprints out there digitally that we have nowadays in 2017. And what happens if suddenly you die? Who is going to look at your Facebook account and your Instagram account and all those emails, et cetera, et cetera? And as Tim is saying, you know, you might not want your wife or husband or girlfriend or boyfriend to necessarily have access to everything. I mean, everybody has got private stuff or, you know, your relatives to know everything, even your friends to necessarily know everything. And of course, that leads to all sorts of questions. You think about it, Tim, too, and it's really quite a task, isn't it? Because if you're someone who is, uh, let's say, quite active on social media, you know, you might have six, seven, eight, ten different profiles across these platforms, different passwords for all of them. Then there's the whole email thing as well. You could have a bunch of different email accounts, all of your financial things that it might be online. I mean, you know, this is something that could take a lot of work to properly get a handle on for someone once you're no longer around. It really is. And one of those, you know, one of the ideas that we were kind of kind of working through with the story was um, really putting into place a very detailed and thorough plan for what happens to your overall digital life, right? Because, you know, you're saying there are so many different places that we live our lives now. Some we were on every day, like Facebook or Twitter. Some we check a little less frequently, like LinkedIn, for example. And some we have, you know, these, these weird, like, email accounts that we set up 15 years ago when we were first learning what the Internet is that are still there, but you're not using. So we have these, like, weird kind of, um, this, this trail of, like, our entire digital lives that, that really, like, we probably even forget that these accounts exist. 
so there's kind of no way to catch all of it. Um, and, you know, on top of just minding all of the accounts we have, you know, it really becomes a matter of uh, digital storage. You know, like, I don't know, you people can use, like, Dropbox or, like, a, a hard drive backup service or even, like, Google Photos or, you know, Google Drive or, or something like that to just kind of store data online and keep it somewhere. And, you know, it's, there's, there's a good chance that, uh, you know, our loved ones don't even know that these exist. So, you know, that's where it really becomes important that, you know, as we kind of do our, our, our sort of general death planning, like estate planning and setting up a will, you know, it really is becoming, you know, you know, more and more important for us to really kind of lay out a very detailed and very thorough plan of where we're living our online lives, where our data is, and what we want to happen to both those, you know, accounts and characters and personalities on top of what we want to happen to that data. You know, do we want it destroyed? Do we want, you know, people to have access to it? You know, these are, you know, really, really big and important questions that, that we only kind of think of when something like this, you know, happens or is in the news or, or you know, someone kind of makes us think about these. I've thought about it preparing for this segment, you know, that I think it is important for some part of my digital life to live on because of all the videos that were posted and photos that were posted and just kind of, uh, I find there's something nice about it. Have you thought about it? What would you like to do, Tim? I have. Um, you know, for me personally, you know, I think I probably want, you know, my Facebook to just be set up as one of those memorial pages, um, you know, maybe have them take down a photo or two or a post or two. But, you know, I, I kind of, I like the idea that we can have these, uh, you know, personas that really do kind of outlive us, you know, for the length of however long Facebook is around, for example. Um, you know, I think there's something, you know, a little kind of romantic and, and kind of, you know, enlivening about that idea. Tim Herrera, my guest, Smarter Living Editor at the New York Times. You're listening to Viewpoints, the podcast on iTunes, smart radio covering top stories of the week, plus fun radio to get you talking. You'll find it all right here. Now, let's get back to the show. I wanted to do something a little fun with the final segment of the show this weekend. Of course, Thursday was April the 20th, or 420 as it's known in some circles, the unofficial International Cannabis Appreciation Day. And this year, something special for Canada, of course, because by this time next year, marijuana will be legalized. And the Trudeau government earlier this month tabled the new law on the books. We've been talking a lot in the media and here on this show recently as well about the pros and cons of legalization. But enough about the politics. We wanted to talk to someone who has made marijuana both her passion and her profession in her 60s. My final guest here on Viewpoints has been dubbed the Martha Stewart of Weed, Lori Wolf. She was profiled in the New Yorker magazine this week. She's the founder of Lori and Mary Jane Edibles, the author of four cannabis cookbooks as well. Lori had epilepsy and she switched from pharmaceutical drugs to medical marijuana, and the rest is history. And we've got her on the line in Portland, Oregon. Lori, welcome to the show. And how did this whole journey begin for you? When I moved out to Portland, I met someone who had a very similar condition, and he told me that he was managing his with cannabis. So I found a cannabis doctor, and I got a medical license. I started weaning myself off of that very strong medicine, and it takes a while because some of those medicines, when they leave your body, can kind of mess you up. So I weaned myself off of that and started using a tiny bit of cannabis, and within three weeks, I was seizure-free, and it's been six years now. Huh. Okay. So you go from this very personal experience, Lori, and you decide to create this marijuana edibles company with all sorts of different recipes and cookbooks. And I guess the one that comes to mind for a lot of people when they think about edibles is brownies. We actually do make a brownie and our brownie won the dope cup last year. Um, I have to say it has no taste of weed whatsoever. So a lot of people just want the brownie. We just wanted to do it right. So you just didn't know that it had cannabis in it. It was delicious. And then, you know, 30 to, you know, 30 minutes to two hours later, you're getting high. But we didn't want to leave out the brownie. We also do an almond cake bite and a truffle, a chocolate truffle. And we just uh, came out with cheese crackers. If you go to most dispensaries, it's all about the sweet edibles, and a lot of people have asked us to make something savory. So this is kind of an upscale cheese it 
We're talking to Lori Wolf on the line in Portland, Oregon. She's called the Martha Stewart of Weed. She's got a company. It's all about marijuana edibles. So you have written four cookbooks that involve cannabis. And I'm curious, you know, again, uh, forgive my ignorance, but the difference between smoking marijuana and actually eating it. In other words, the edibles. In layman's terms, what are we talking about? I think it's a very different high experience. Um, smoking is immediate, and from the the moment it starts, it can be pretty intense. What I love about an edible is that it comes on gradually. You know, it, it takes at least 30 minutes to kick in. So a lot of times I kind of will eat an edible and just go on to doing something else and sort of forget that I have eaten an edible. You start feeling yourself getting high or getting medicated in subtle ways, like you just like notice that you feel way more relaxed or your eyes feel heavy or you just like all of a sudden will have a surge of creativity and then it's like, whoa, I'm starting to get high. And it lasts longer, more than I would say about smoking a joint or from a bong. I mentioned that you've been given the nickname the Martha Stewart of weed. What do you think about that? When I started to treat my epilepsy with cannabis, I started, you know, trying edibles that were available, and most of them were were pretty terrible. So I I remember saying to my husband four years ago, I'm going to do this. I want to become the Martha Stewart of edibles. And it was kind of a joke, like for, you know, these last few years, like thinking about that. And then six months ago, I was contacted by a woman named Lizzie Whittacombe, who's a writer for The New Yorker. And she asked, you know, how I felt about her profiling me. And, um, you know, I was thrilled. And so she came out from New York and spent a week with me. Um, she was actually with me when we won the Dope Cup, when the Brownie won. So it was great. And, you know, the article, you know, is online now. It just came out. And she refers to me as the Martha Stewart of edibles. And I think it's great. You know, to me, becoming the Martha Stewart of anything is an incredible compliment. So, yeah, it was great. It was really kind of like, I think I put on my Facebook page, boy, this is what I dreamed about. <laughs> You know, that doesn't happen that much in life. I, I mean, I don't know about yours, but, you know, this was pretty amazing. I was like, oh, yeah. Lori Wolf is my guest. She's joining us in Portland, Oregon, and she is called the Martha Stewart of Weed, profiled recently, as Lori's talking about, in The New Yorker. Uh, for many years now, she's been coming up with new recipes to use cannabis in food, and she's got four cookbooks out as well. One final question for you. What's your advice to our country? Because Canada is going to be embarking on this path, and I know Oregon, the state of Oregon, where you are, has already ventured down this road. Um, what would your yeah. sort of your, your, your guidance be for us, your counsel? The thing that we stress in our company is less is more. If you're going to try cannabis for the first time or you're going to retry cannabis because you haven't done it for years, start with the lowest dose and work up. Lori Wolf, my guest, joining us from Portland, Oregon. She's been called the Martha Stewart of Weed. You can find out more information on her website, lauriandmaryjane.com, lauriandmaryjane.com. And that's going to do it for us today here on the show. Thanks for listening to Viewpoints on iTunes. I'm Todd Vanderhayden. Our show producers, Matt Gilmore, Fernando Gelso, Tina Lullum, and Dave Simon. You can connect with me on social media on Instagram and Twitter. Same handle for both, at ToddCTV. And you can catch me weekdays on television on CTV News Channel, which is CTV's 24-hour breaking news cable channel, 2 to 5 Eastern, 11 to 2 Pacific. We'll be back here again soon with more Viewpoints. And until then, take care of yourself. 